Right, folks. I, I know that we're expecting uh, Greg and, uh, and his ilk uh, soon, but uh, I think we'll just crack on because it's already five past eight. Um, so we're doing Mark tonight, which is exciting. So we've, we've now done Matthew and Mark. Well, we've now done Matthew. Tonight will be Mark. So we've only got two left after this, so two more in August. And then, uh, and then we've completed the Gospels, which is exciting. Um, so before we kind of crack on and start tonight, I just thought I would hand it over to you guys to talk in your groups um, about Mark, really. So I think just five, five, ten at the most if the conversation is really flowing. Um, but what, from your own reading of Mark, um, what stands out to you? What do you pick up and take from the gospel that you doesn't necessarily mean something that you wouldn't get from the others, but particularly from Mark. And, and if you're sat there thinking, well, I don't really know Mark that well, then find someone on your table who does really like Mark and ask them what stands out to them. And uh, yeah, let's just talk about what stands out for you about Mark. What do you remember from Mark? Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a good point to make, isn't it? Because obviously Matthew gives us the whole birth narrative, the virgin birth. Luke even goes to Elizabeth and, Zach- and Zachariah and what's going on with them. John goes back before even time begins. In the beginning was the word and goes through this long kind of prologue of then eventually we get to Jesus comes to his own. Mark just, Jesus turns up, said some stuff, did some things. Um, (laughs) And as you say, it's just right in. I mean, it's the shortest of all the Gospels um, by quite a mile. Um, It's it's certainly, we've all drawn out the the punchiness of it. And uh, I think you can kind of, when you understand the person of Peter, I think you kind of get that a little bit because, for me at least, Peter in the Gospels just strikes me as someone who's always moving on to the next thing. He's like this and then he's like this. You know, oh, look at all these fish. Lord, leave me. Uh, oh, there's Jesus. Jump out the boat, grab him. You know, hug. Um, he's very kind of uh, easily stirred, I would say. I mean, it must be fun to be friends with Peter. And I think you kind of get that a little bit in, in Mark's gospel. He's like, oh, and then this happened. Oh, and then this happened. So I think you do see a lot of his personality come through. But it's good to see that we've uh, drawn out some of the same stuff. Now, if we just turn to Mark 10, I just want to kind of give this as, I think, the theme of the whole book. Um, in Mark 10:45, I think there's just this summary this, uh, from Jesus. But it really summarizes the theme of the gospel itself. Jesus says in Mark 10, verse 45, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We, we saw in the first week that how the, the gospels have been likened to the animals from Revelation. Um, Matthew was the king, the, king the, the lion, the kingly gospel. Uh, Luke was the, the man, the very kind of orderly um, we have this topic of the humanities, don't we, where everything's all very structured and orderly. And then John, like the eagle, you know, gliding above. And, and Mark was the ox, the suffering animal. And that suffering servant motif of, uh, of, of Mark, we're going to talk about it tonight, but I really want to kind of just bring that to the fore because I think that's something that becomes very precious to Peter, particularly. And I think he's really keen to show this, where he got it from. So a couple of just introductory comments. Mark has been overlooked for a long time um, because it was just seen as kind of a very simple book. And more recently, it has been 
uh, examined by kind of what's called narrative critics, so people who spend their life reading English literature and finding out how books weave stories together. And he's now kind of in the academic world. Mark went from being this simple story written by a Galilean fisherman to being this, wow, this is a literary masterpiece. And we'll talk a little bit about that um, in a minute. But to get into that conversation, let's just take a note of the intro. You've actually got the intro on your handout there. Because it's like we talked about, it goes in very quickly. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So straight away, it's announced who this is about. It's the beginning of that good news. That's an interesting thing to say. It's the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So this is how Mark opens this book up for us. And there's a, there's a couple of things, a couple of stops I want us to make in this intro, which tell us something about Mark's theme. Can anyone tell me what the problem is with these few verses, particularly with just this first two, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, I'll send my messenger ahead of you. Yeah, it's not Isaiah. Now, this is just a really interesting thing because the second bit, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, that is Isaiah. But the first bit is not Isaiah, it's, it's Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. But it does clearly say, as is written in Isaiah the prophet. So what do we do about that? So there you go. Oh, sorry, not verse 1, verse 6. Um, I thought it was verse 1. Maybe I did the wrong verse. It is verse 1. Okay, I did the wrong verse. Um, so read that as verse 1. So what, what do you think? What, what are some solutions that would come to mind on first glance? Even if you don't agree with them, just things you can imagine that people have said to explain it in the past. Okay, so someone will kind of juggle with the authorship of Isaiah and Malachi. Yep, it's an option. Okay, so this was a solution that was very popular. Isaiah was just the head prophet. So all the other prophets, if you like, are subservient to him. Pardon? Yeah. Yeah, it's not that much of a detail. You just stick it under Isaiah. Uh, this is a solution that I imagine most people probably won't agree with, but a solution is just Mark wasn't very clever and got his footnotes wrong. Um, that was a very popular one. In fact, in uh, 1986, I think it was, the president of Cambridge University did an uh, inaugural lecture where she referenced Mark and she made a comment about, and of course we all know about Mark's inability to reference properly, and a kind of very disparaging remark about it, and it was all just taken by the you know, faculty and the student body say, oh yeah, yeah, we all know that Mark's wrong. So these are all come some solutions that have been, kind of been given. Um, the, the one about Isaiah kind of being the head prophet, so you can just kind of quote any prophet and say oh, it's Isaiah, that's been the most kind of popular one in, in the history of the church, but it's never really convinced the more critical, liberal scholars. But then, a guy came along, and we love this, I love it when guys come along. 
this guy, Ricky Watts. And the, the, the best thing, what I love about his name is his name is Ricky, and I'm sure he does this on purpose. He stylizes it, he drops the I, but includes his, his middle initial. So you take off the I of Ricky, and it turns into Ricky Watts. I mean, isn't that just genius? Anyway, so uh, I see no one else is as entertained by that as I am. <laughs> but um, so Ricky Watts did his PhD at Cambridge University, and that, that uh, female, uh, the woman who I just uh, referenced a second ago who wrote that uh, speech, she actually read his dissertation afterwards as, and was convinced by him. But essentially, he did a lot of digging in Mark, and he wrote this book called Isaiah's New Exodus in Mark, and he found... Okay, he found that Isaiah, by far, is the most dominant prophet in the book of Mark, and Malachi isn't referenced anywhere else. That's interesting. Did some more digging, found that in first century Judaism, in rabbinic commentaries and um, scriptures written from this time period, non-biblical scriptures, a consistent practice was to choose one prophet and read the other prophets through that lens. So in other words, I'm going I'm to choose Jeremiah, and now I'm going to read Zechariah with the lens of the themes and the things that come through Zechariah, and then they would quote the other prophets through that lens. So when you realize that Mark is mostly using Isaiah, he's just doing what him and his contemporaries do when he also quotes from Malachi but quotes it to Isaiah. So he basically published this as a thesis, and now people on all sides, the the most conservative, the most critical, are all saying, yeah, I think you found the answer. That, that's great. So, uh, I mean, he, he's done far more than just solve the intro to Mark. But nonetheless, it's a really interesting point because it tells us a lot about what Mark's doing. Straight in the intro, we know he's setting us up to understand that the exodus that Isaiah promised is now coming to pass in Jesus. And he wants us to read all the other promises about this coming one through that light. And, and what he goes through in this book is how Mark's narrative structure actually leads us to seeing the exodus taking place. Jesus leading his people out and the king returning to Zion, which happens at, at the end. So that's, that's really good stuff. And, the, and that book isn't as hard to read as some of the others I've recommended in the past. So if you did want to read, uh, read that, Isaiah's New Exodus by Ricky Watts. It's very good. Um, and as I said last time, I think also just sit your hand up if you have any questions or want me to slow down at any point. Um, yeah. Second thing about the intro. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Straight away, Jesus is identified as the Son of God. And then right then at the end, as he's on the cross, we have the centurion who stands in front of Jesus, sees how he dies, and says, surely this man was the Son of God. Now, this is what we call an inclusio. Inclusio is, is used very commonly in all kinds of literature, but it's when you have something at the beginning that matches something at the end, and basically those two bookends are there to kind of explain and interpret everything else in the middle. So if the inclusio is, this man is the son of God, the story is explaining to us what it means for him to be the son of God. Which, and we'll talk about this again later, but when you consider the, the role of suffering that, that, that is there in Mark particularly, it seems to be saying that there's this ironic thing where Jesus shows his majesty and his might and his power, 
by suffering for his people. He shows us what it means to be the son of God. So that, that's a really interesting, again, something in the intro which tells us about the whole rest of the story. It's, it's true in all, the, in all the Gospels. The way that they start is almost very, um, well, not almost, I think in every case, is, is symptomatic of what they're going to be doing throughout the rest of the thing. So it's worth spending a bit of time in these first verses. So uh, that's the intro. Let's just move, look at some of the, uh, the features, the other features in, in Mark. So we've, we brought this out earlier. The, the fast pace in Mark is something that he's very keen to do, that kind of snappiness. So the word immediately. Uh, so this, this is a, I did a, a word search today in, my, in the um, Greek New Testament. So the, the word for immediately is the Greek word evthus. And I looked at all the other occasions. So it appears five times in Matthew, once in Luke, twice if you include Luke and Acts, three times in John, and 41 times in Mark. So you can tell this isn't just like, you know, he's, he says it slightly more. It's a lot more. And if you read through Mark, just, just make a note of every time he says immediately. And, and sometimes it doesn't even make sense. It's just how can it be immediate? You know, immediately he came out of the water. Immediately he went into a synagogue. Is it like how fast is he moving? But I think it's, it's a kind of a narrative immediately. It's a just kind of moving on, taking the story to the next place. And this second point, let me explain this a little bit. This is a, a, a thing in uh, Greek grammar that's not actually that hard to grasp, and I can give you a, a, um, an example. This is something, we have something very, very similar in English. Okay, so we have a past tense. So I, I could say, so um, I could say, I went for a walk with Simon last week, and he took me up a hill, and when we got to the top of the hill, he turned to me and he said, isn't that beautiful? I said, yes. And he said, I've, I've bought the lot of it. <laughs> okay, so I could say it like that. Or I could say, I went for a walk with Simon last week. He takes me up a hill and he turns to me and he says, I've just bought the lot of it. See, the, the difference there was that I said, he takes me up the hill, he turns to me and he says, they're all present tenses. So the difference between the first and the second is that in the second, it kind of has this kind of, I'm drawing you back into the story. There's kind of an immediacy to it. I'm kind of moving the story along more. So by saying, he turned to me, and he turns to me, it's very subtle, but you get the different sense and emphasis, right? So it's very, very similar in Greek. It's not entirely the same, but it's very similar. So uh, yeah, he takes me up this hill and he says to me, and Mark does this, almost all the time. He, he has very few past tenses. And I, I think it's, again, it's just this part of drawing you into the story, moving the story along. It's all part of that fast pace. And then the last thing to mention, and this brings up what you mentioned earlier, Suzanne, uh, Mark is kind of selectively detailed. So what do we know about the wilderness temptation, his 40, his 40 days in the wilderness? Okay, so, so what, what happened when Jesus was in the wilderness? Okay, how many temptations were there? Okay, what were they? Yeah, turn rocks into bread to eat. Bow down and worship him. And jump from the temple. Yeah, and the angels will catch you. All right, and in what does Jesus do every time? 
Yeah, he quotes scripture, responds to Satan, and eventually we're told that Satan leaves him. Mark's wilderness account is not like that at all. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness, the devil was tempting him, and he was there among the wild beasts. Okay. You can imagine the questions. What, what, what happened there? Let me just, uh, anyway, immediately something else happened. <laughs> so he's kind of, he doesn't really put details in the bits which would kind of really interest us most of the time. As, as people who don't know the story, it's kind of like um, if I'm talking about something I'm very familiar with, I might just assume knowledge, but you might be going, hang on a second, slow down. And I'll be saying, oh, sorry, did, not, did I not explain that to you? So that's interesting. So the wilderness temptation is, is the case in point. But the things that we might not think need all the detail, Mark does. So I've done this in such a small font, I'm not expecting you to read all of this. But this is an example of Matthew's concise style contrasted with Mark's expansive style. So this is taken from that Mark Strauss book, The Four Portraits, One Jesus. But this is the story of the healing of Jairus's daughter, the synagogue leader, and in the meantime, the woman with the... Um, years of bleeding. Matthew's account has 139 words in Greek, because it's kind of all you really need to get the story, whereas Mark's has 345 words. So the bit about him being tempted in the wilderness that kind of sounds a bit strange that we might like some more detail on, Mark thinks that's enough. When it comes to people in need that Jesus has time for to heal and take care of. Mark goes, now this is, this is where we need the detail. It's, it's just something very interesting about what it means for him to keep pushing this story forward. Okay. Uh, the last thing we're gonna look at before we have a little um, group work break is what we call triplets and triads. And there is one other thing which is on the handout which I'll explain called intercalation. Um, the simpler word for intercalation is just sandwiching. So if you don't want to learn the word intercalation, which you don't have to, just remember the word sandwiches. But first, let's look at some triplets. So I, Mark loves threes. It's full of threes. There's always kind of this happen. If, you, if something significant happens, you can expect it to happen two more times. So there's three boat scenes to show a lack of faith and awareness from the disciples. There's three predictions of Jesus' death. There's three calls to alertness in, in Mark 13 in the Olivet Discourse. There's three times that the disciples are caught sleeping in Gethsemane and Jesus tells them to wake up. Peter denies three times. There's three three-hour periods on the cross. That, I mean, there's more. I didn't include more. But the point there is it's not saying that in reality these things only happened once and Mark has expanded it to three. Rather, I think it's the, it's the point that it, it would be possible to tell the story without emphasizing the threeness. And it maybe happened four or five times, but Mark doesn't include all of them. I, I think the point merely is that uh, Mark likes threes. And threes, there's something about them. You know, there's the rule of three in advertising. Three-point sermon, exactly. One feels like you haven't, it's like a, with an example. If someone says, oh, give me an example of that, you need to have three ready, because one makes it sound like it's just a one-off, two makes it sound like you're a bit ill-prepared, three is the perfect number, and four just sounds like you're going on. So I think, I think Mark is using these threes to make the story more engaging for the audience, to make the story more memorable, and to emphasize these things. You know, you get to the third time that Jesus is predicting his death, and you're thinking, have the disciples still not got this? You know, I'm, I'm hearing the story for the first time, and, and I've got it. So uh, I think that, that's kind of the, the, the point. But the other, the other threes thing that Mark does is what's called, as I say, intercalation. So 
Intercalation would be like, you've got a story. So let's say I took the story about me and Simon walking up the hill. And halfway through that story, I break that story to, to tell you another story. And then I go back to that story. So what was one story now becomes three panels. So you take one, split it into A and B, and then you put B on one end, and then you put another one in the middle. Now the point is, the one that's in the middle explains the bigger story. It, it emphasizes what's going on there, what we're supposed to take from it. So let me give you an example. So you've got A, and you've got the ending. They're connected, and something in the middle. So you have the story in Mark. Jesus curses a fig tree. The end of the story is they come back and they find that the fig tree is withered. Very interesting story. What does the fig tree represent? What's Jesus doing there? Don't know. Ah, the middle of the story, Jesus cleanses the temple. So in other words, what we're supposed to do, okay, what was the temple cleansing about? That was about Jesus um, condemning Israel for not being who they're called to be for taking what's supposed to be a house of prayer and turning it into a house of revolution and banditry. That's what Jesus did, and on each side of that, he curses a fig tree for not bearing fruit, and he finds it withered. It tells you something about what that represents. It's, it's, it's Jesus coming to Israel looking for fruit and not finding it, so promising that it will indeed wither. Okay, let's look at another one. Jesus sends out the twelve... And then at the end, the 12 return to Jesus. Is, this, is that too small or is that okay? Okay, good. In the middle, notice this, in the middle, John the Baptist dies for being a faithful witness. He's put to death for doing what God's called him to do. So what's going on in that sandwiching? The, the disciples are having or rather we're getting a definition of what true discipleship looks like. Faithfulness in the trenches. You may not end up like John the Baptist when you're sent out. You may return, but you might do. That's what discipleship looks like. So this is kind of a really, um, this is really important in Mark, particularly. And, and I just want to spend some, some time as a group looking at a particular story, one that was referenced earlier, to just see what the sandwiching is actually doing so if you, if you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. This is the story I referenced earlier of the healing of Jairus' daughter. And in the middle of this story, you have the woman with the issue of blood who is healed. Um, I just want to spend some time. I'll give you 10 minutes. What's the sandwiches? What's the filling? What does the filling have to tell you about the main story? So 10 minutes from now, let's just spend a bit of time looking at a, a, trip, a sandwich triplet. Um, yeah, great. That's great. I mean, I, this is one of my favorite passages in the Gospels. I, I preached on it a few months ago, and it really struck me, because really, I think it really shows something about the heart of Jesus. But um, yeah. I think some things to notice which I think help us to understand this sandwich is the first story is not just the fact that there's a little girl on a deathbed, it's, it's Jairus, a synagogue leader. This guy's, a, this guy's a big dog in the community and his daughter, this most precious thing to him, is ill and dying in fact. 
And so it would just be a story about a man who means a lot to a lot of people, who is very respectable, and it, Jesus would be doing well to have helped Jairus out. It would just be a story about him healing her daughter. And so much emphasis gets put on the story in the middle from a woman who is an outcast, from the woman who can't come into society, let alone have any respect amongst it. And the story seems to emphasize the fact that Simon pointed out, Jesus spends most of the time with her. So the beginning is respectable, honored guy. The ending is little girl saved. The middle is outcast woman healed. And the particular emphasis is it's not the fact you touched me that saved you. It's not your effort that saved you. It's your faith. All the factors that you could bring out, dear woman, it was the faith. And I think what Mark is doing is making us say, Jesus didn't go with Jairus because he had all the cred, because he had the clout. He didn't, this, this girl wasn't healed just because Jesus is a miracle worker. He went with Jairus because he was a man of faith. He healed this woman, even though she was an outcast, because she came in faith. And then the, this is where it gets a bit spicy. A little girl who was dead was healed by faith. I mean, I think that, I don't really know what point I'm trying to make with this, other than I think that causes us to kind of reassess what we, mess, what we mean by the word faith sometimes, when a little girl who's dead can be healed by her faith. So, yeah, I think that's a great example of just how this can have such a profound impact on the, on the story. Um, no, no, crack on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think part of that, that sandwich is just showing Jesus has time for people. I mean, that, that's such a, I think, that, I mean, think of all the applications for that today. In a, in a culture where we feel like we don't have time for anything. I'm saying to Jesus, hurry up. <laughs> because this woman has been healed. That's how the story starts. Yeah, yeah. At the beginning, normally it's the other way around. Yeah, listen about the 12 years. <laughs> Go to the girl. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so much so that they even come and say, don't bother anymore, Jesus. You know, clearly you've got your mind on other things. She's died now. And Jesus goes, no, we're still going. <laughs> yeah, that is great. I mean, it's just even the... F- yeah, yeah. Yes. I think that's from the sandwiching. So if the middle story is about the importance of faith, not anything else, that's the reception, the receptacle by which the kind of goodness of God is to be enjoyed. That's the main point we're supposed to take. So we're taking that, applying that to the beginning. Jesus goes with Jairus because of faith, and therefore the implication would be, so the healing at the end comes through faith. Well, is it not? Uh, 
I, as I say, I mean, I realised I was, I realised I was dropping a bit of a, a, a bomb in there, but I, I would say I don't think Jesus heals on um, um, vicarious faith. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with the point. I suppose I'm more making the point that there's something specific going on with this device that Mark's using. And so that's a general truth that I think we can apply in the whole gospel. But in this specific, uh, specific example of this story splits two with one in the middle to explain those, the two other halves, I think that we can't just apply the general things. We have to see what the story itself is drawing out. And I think that middle story is really drawing out the it's your faith that's made you well, not any of the other things. So I'm just saying we do what we do with the other sandwiches that Mark gives, and we take that middle and apply it to both ends. So I'm saying if that middle is about the importance of faith to appropriate the, the benefits that are of Jesus because he has the authority over sickness, then what we're saying is to the first end, Jairus comes by faith, and to the second end, that, that, even that little girl. As I say, I... Don't, I, I uh, I realise it's a it's a bit of a it's a bit of a bombshell, and we can work out what we mean by that. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to move on. That good? Uh, yeah, I mean that that's a, another great point, Joyce. I mean you're just the you're just knocking them out of the park tonight. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's that, that's, that's quite a profound point, really, that he takes in these two men who have come to know his power and authority and come to have faith in him. And this is just after the walking on the water. Very good. Let's move on. Thank you, Joyce. So let's just look at some themes quickly. We'll just kind of rush through these. I mentioned this at the beginning, the suffering servant. This is a really important theme in Mark, more so than the others. There's that verse we looked at at the beginning, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Where does that um, suffering servant motif come from in the Bible, if you know? Isaiah. Yeah, so there's about 10 songs in Isaiah called servant songs, and they're all about this suffering servant they start in about Isaiah 41 and they carry on until towards the end. And it kind of shows this servant of Yahweh who's going to raise up, he's going to suffer. And again, we saw earlier how Isaiah is really important for Mark. And I think, again, Mark is seeing Jesus. He's reading the promises in Isaiah. I think he's just putting two and two together and saying, this is the suffering servant. I think especially when you consider that Mark is written later than the events described, and by that point, um, Peter has probably actually experienced some suffering himself, 
as, I mean, it's what Acts 8 tells us, that he suffers from about 36 AD, and the, the, they're scattered. I think he goes, this is just like the king who we're following. And so I think it becomes really kind of precious to Peter, um, this, this whole thing about Jesus being that suffering servant. He's the rejected king. Um, so in, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 12, I've, I've mentioned this on the handout, throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus is casting out demons. That's just one word in, in, in the Greek, ekvalo. And in Mark 1, verse 12, all the others just say Jesus went into the wilderness. But Mark says Jesus is cast out. Same word it uses to describe Jesus casting out the demons. He's cast out into the wilderness. It's like as he brings the kingdom, as he pushes it in, he's being pushed out. He's this rejected king. Sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it's true, both at the same time. When he's on the cross, it's Mark that tells us that people say he could save others, but he can't save himself. That suffering servant who shows us what the glory of God looks like. Shows us that the glory of God isn't necessarily just strolling on into Jerusalem and getting a gold crown and putting your feet up. Uh, Actually, it's suffering. There's, There's no crown without a cross. And so if Jesus is this suffering servant, what does that make his followers? They are the suffering servants of the suffering servant. So they follow in his footsteps, um, which I think is, well, we'll talk about this a bit at the end. I think this is part of the challenge of Mark for us today. It's saying this is what it looks like to be the son of God. Are you willing to be adopted into that family? Are you ready to suffer for the suffering king? Uh, On this point, I think another thing we see in Mark's gospel is the disciples. I mean, they're not presented as the most intelligent bunch in, in, in any of the Gospels. But in Mark, it's not just that they're a bit dumb. It's that they act, actively seem to be more of a hindrance than a help. And, which is, again, interesting. I, just think about Peter. Peter's the only one of, of them who had that kind of intimacy with Jesus, bear in mind. I think, I think Peter is kind of doing a bit of self-reflection and, and realizing Jesus was the good one. And he, he is so good to such a degree that it makes us look... Not like that. We don't, we're not worthy of being his followers. So, and so they, they just constantly miss the point. They're constantly saying to Jesus, you know, when Jesus says, I have to die. Do you really, though? So I think that's really interesting, and especially as I've put here, there's, there's no restoration passages. So in the other Gospels, Peter denies Jesus. And then on the beach, Jesus restores him. He's welcomed back in. The disciples flee when he's arrested, but then they're gathered together again at the resurrection. You don't get any of that in Mark. The last time you see them before Jesus rises from the dead, you don't even see him rise from the dead in Mark, they're fleed. They're all scattered. There's no restoration. I think it's this point of, um, yeah, even the followers sometimes can be part of the problem. You know, this, this suffering servant is suffering even from those who are supposed to be his friends. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, I was about to make a joke about that, being, that just being church life, but everyone at church is far too precious to me to actually make that joke. Okay, so let's just finish here. Um, I'm in two minds about going as technical as we could. I think some people will enjoy the technicalness and some people might not. Um, so I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll try and see what we, we say, but... The ending of Mark, before we get to the technical bit, the ending of Mark, I think, tells us a lot about Mark's purpose. You know, if you think about it, the way that you end a story often wraps up the point you're trying to make all along. So 
let's say I'm telling you the story, you know, about how I was playing, I don't know, chess in the park with some guy I met, and I thought it was going to be uh, not very fun, and I didn't like talking to strangers, but in the end I had a whale of a time, and then I said, and so in conclusion, buy a house before the market crashes. <laughs> what? <laughs> So the kind of the way that you wrap up the story tells you a lot about what you were doing. And when there's that kind of incongruity, we just, we don't understand what's going on. So we get to the end of Mark, and, and we'll talk about this in a, in a minute, but there is no ending. Jesus has died. It's heavily implied that he has risen from the dead, but the disciples don't see him. And it simply says, uh, well, let me just read the ending, because... I realize there's a bit of debate here, and I'll explain what the debate is in just one second. Um, so Mark chapter 16, verse 8, says, They looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, and it had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So this is talking to the women. But go... Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, there you will see him, just as he told you. So they've been told that he's risen from the dead, and they've been told where to find him. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. What is going on there? Why is it so abrupt? Now, as I say, we'll talk about this in a second, but... This is basically, because it is so abrupt, it led to lots of people saying, well, cl clearly this wasn't the ending. And so we have a, a multiplicity of endings that have been provided for us. And some people today, so N.T. Wright, who's a very um, important New Testament scholar, he basically says the, the real ending of Mark has been lost. I don't think so. I think this really is the ending, and I think that's the point. Bear in mind, Mark is very early for the Gospels, 42 A.D., from? I think Mark is written as an evangelistic tract. I think it was taken to small churches, to small groups of people, and it was read, and that, bear in mind how it begins, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not over yet. And when it ends, that abruptness is supposed to say, well, what now? And I think at that point, the reader says, well, what now? What are you going to do about it? He's risen. The disciples went to find him. Now you are called to go and find him for yourself. You know, and, and bear in mind, in this time period, they can literally say, why don't you go grab one of the apostles? I think Paul's in Corinth at the moment. I think Peter's over in Judea. Why don't you go and travel and talk to them? So I think the ending is abrupt on purpose to draw out that kind of response. What are you going to do to carry on this story? Because this story is only the beginning. So I, I do think that Mark is an evangelistic tract. It tells, it's, it's so punchy, it tells the story of the suffering servant, it moves along quickly, it details certain bits and doesn't detail other bits because it's all drawing to this point of response. How are you going to respond to Jesus? Cool. Um, hmm, how do we feel about doing a tiny little bit of technical stuff? Would anyone... Oh, I'm not going to do a vote because then people will say no or yes. And either way. So, okay, so let me just briefly. So, if you have a King James Version Bible, for instance, or an older Bible, or even in an NIV, can someone just say, do you have a little brackets after verse 8? What does it say? 
Can you say that again, Joseph? Louder? Okay, great. So, in other words, what it's saying is, here's an ending which has been very popular, but the best manuscripts we have of the Gospel of Mark don't have this ending. So, you might know the ending if you grew up reading the King James Version or the, what, what would it be in Afrikaans, the Stadtwörtlang? Oh, I, okay. Okay, well, that, it would... Okay, so you probably know the you probably know the long ending of Mark, do you? It includes Jesus saying, you know, you'll have the authority to pick up snakes and they won't poison you, and and and, and you can drink poison, and you won't die. And so you have in America the the Church of the Snake Handlers. Has anyone seen this? So this, this church, every Sunday they'll pick up snakes because and they'll get bitten by them because Mark Mark sixteen nine to twenty says that we can pick up snakes and drink poison. The problem is, Mark probably didn't write it. And we have good reason for thinking that Mark probably didn't write it. It's been a long time in Christian tradition from about the 5th century, but that doesn't mean that it's original. And our goal when we come to Scripture is we want to come to Scripture. We want to come to what the apostles themselves wrote. So we need to ask, did Mark actually write this? Now, I'm just going to give you a little taste of how we know. So this is from Romans. So that, that first, that big le- letters there, that says pros Romanus, which means to the Romans. And just here, it says the words Christu Jesu, which means Christ Jesus. And you might see there's a tiny little footnote there, one. So we go down to the footnote at the bottom, and there we go. There's, there's this variant, and it tells us, so Christu Jesu, Christ Jesus. And it then tells us that this is found in Papyrus 10, Codex B, um, a, a lectionary called 81, it's quoted in Irenaeus and Origen, but then it points out there's another variant. Now this one isn't Christ Jesus, this one is Jesus Christ. Very different. And this one can be found in Papyrus 26, Codex Sinaticus, Codex Alexandrinus. So basically the point is, I'm just using a very simple variant to show you that we know that there are variants in the manuscripts. Some say this, some say that. And so the goal of what's called textual criticism is to work out which one's more likely original. Which one did Paul write? Now, if you might be able to see, there's a little B next to the first variant. So A is like, absolutely sure. There is no doubt. B is like, we're pretty confident. C is, yeah, I wouldn't die for it. And D is like, eh, could go either way. So this is a B. I'm just going to show you the long ending of Mark. I use this Romans 1 one to show you that sometimes it's very straightforward. Some say Christ Jesus, some say Jesus Christ. It's more likely this one. Mark has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven variants with very small witnesses. So when we come back to this one, for instance, so A, very confident, the earliest and best manuscripts don't have verse 9 to 20 at all. But then after that, you get all these different endings. This is my favorite one. My favorite one is right here. This ending just says, and then Jesus appeared to them. <laughs> it's like, it needs an ending. Let's just give it one. Jesus appeared to them. The end. <laughs> I love that one. But so that the point is, it doesn't look like, d- doing this manuscript tradition, it doesn't look like Mark originally had an ending. It, look, it looks like at some point in the uh, end of the fourth century, scribes started to think, oh, 
The last person to have copied out this manuscript forgot to put an ending on the end. Well, best include one. I'd, I'd know the ending of Matthew, and so they start to include it. And so we end up with about five different endings of Mark because different scribes are trying to come up with their own thing. So it's very common to hear people say today something like, oh, the NIV just takes bits of scripture out. That's really not what's going on at all. We want scripture. What we don't want is people's additions to scripture in our scripture. So, uh, yeah, I don't think that, that that's um, part of Mark originally. Now, I, that was a bit more technical than I was going to. I only added this in just before we started because I thought I'd love to address it, but hope you could follow that. So I've put on the handout that very last question. The challenge of the ending of Mark is how are you going to respond to the servant king? Are you going to join him as a suffering servant yourself? And I, I think that's the great challenge of Mark for every generation. So let's just um, finish and recap. So we saw how Mark's intro sets up for the content of his gospel. We saw that Malachi quote and the inclusio. We explored some of the distinctives, like the fast pace and the triplets and the sandwiching. We looked at that theme of suffering. And then we saw the textual issue with a longer ending at the end and the uh, challenge of the end. So um, that's it for Mark. Uh, in two weeks' time, we'll be looking at Luke. And then four weeks' time, we'll be looking at John. So I hope that's satisfactory for you. Um, let me pray, and if there are any questions, then stick your hand up and ask the group, or just come and ask me. But let me pray. Here, yeah, Lord Jesus, we just we thank you that you do challenge our assumptions about what it means to be the Son of God. And Lord, that you didn't just come here and immediately walk on the path to glory, but Lord, you show us that the crown is only received once the cross is taken. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would challenge us and call us to follow in the footsteps of the suffering servant and to be suffering servants ourselves. Lord, we thank you for Mark. We thank you for the testimony that it is to you. We just pray that we would receive its challenge and be surprised afresh by your ministry, how you had time for people. So, in Jesus' name, we just ask that you to apply this to us. Amen.